How about that? There we go. And all the things that I enjoy uh, reading, uh, outside of things that I read for preparation for Sunday morning, that history and biography are near the top of that list. And so occasionally when somebody will pose the question, hey, if you could take any historical figure in American history out to dinner, dead or alive, who would you choose? I always love pondering that question. And I think about somebody maybe like George Washington, father of the nation, has the gravitas and the personality to help birth the United States. Maybe it would be somebody like Adams or Jefferson or Madison who in their genius and in the clarity and beauty of their writing help to articulate the founding principles that will identify who we are as people. Maybe Lincoln, who knows adversity, the likes of which I don't know that any of our other presidents could really understand. Maybe I wouldn't even pick a president. Maybe I would pick an astronaut. I love space. Maybe somebody like John Glenn or Neil Armstrong, somebody who was there at the beginning of the space race and knew what it was like to live in that time and all of the fear and triumph of being propelled by a rocket and blown into space. I don't know who I'd choose. But I'm fairly sure that if you went back to the middle, late 60s of the first century and you were polling a Jewish audience, someone who was familiar with the Old Testament, someone who found their identity in all of the laws and precepts of God found there in the Old Testament, that a huge number of the people polled would tell you, oh, I know exactly who I'd want to sit down with at dinner. I'd want to sit with Moses. Bring me Moses. Moses was a towering figure, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament era, because so much of what he did, he wrote. The first five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Christian canon, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were all written by Moses. Written by him and much of it about him. And it tells the story of the birth of the nation in many ways. And so by the first century, they read Moses' writings, and they sang Moses' songs, and they prayed Moses' prayers day in and day out. There may not have been a single figure in the history of the nation of Israel who was more influential in the first century than Moses. Now, we went through Deuteronomy, and we were there for the better part of a year, and you'll remember in the closing verses of the book of Deuteronomy, after Moses has died, Joshua, I think is our likely editor there, comes in and says, oh, you would not believe this figure Moses, unparalleled in power. No one has been able to do the kinds of miracles that Moses did. Unparalleled, peerless in his closeness and proximity to God. And even to this day, there has been none like him in Israel. He's a towering figure of the Old Testament, casts a very long shadow. But if you go back to the middle of Deuteronomy, and maybe we will later this morning, you'll find that in Deuteronomy 18, right there in the middle of the chapter, Moses himself makes a very specific prophecy. He says, uh, of course, I am a prophet now in the service of God our King, but one day he's going to send another prophet, a greater prophet. And God will put his words in that prophet's mouth. He will be unlike any other who's ever come in service to God in the nation of Israel. 
And it's interesting because if you read as we have in the first few chapters here of Hebrews, the way that Jesus is described is first as one who bears the words of God. And it's almost inescapable to see how the author of Hebrews understands that that phenomenal prophecy, a prophet is coming even greater than Moses, a prophecy made by Moses himself, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so in the first couple of verses, we find long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. You can read there in parentheses, Moses, for example. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. The promise made a millennia and a half earlier, now fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. And if there's a big idea that emerges out of the first six verses of Hebrews chapter 3, it's not just that Jesus is greater than the angels. It's that Jesus is the greatest prophet that has ever been given to the nation even greater than Moses. So what I need you to see over the next couple of verses is how our author talks about who Moses is. He doesn't put him down. He elevates him to an extraordinary status. And then in comparison and in contrast, how he talks about Jesus. It's not that Jesus is another prophet. Jesus is the prophet the priest and king prophesied by Moses has now arrived to bring us the words of God and to draw us into the house of God. So let's go ahead and start in verse 1. Let me read the first six verses. Now, uh, I know that we don't intend to be in Hebrews for like the next seven years, though we certainly could spend that amount of time here. So what we're going to do this week is we're going to take the first six verses, Jesus is greater than Moses. Next week, we're going to take the next warning passage. You know, this is how the book of Hebrews works. You get theology, and then you get a very practical warning passage. And we'll see a little bit of that in verse 6. Uh, that warning passage runs through the entire rest of chapter 3 and part of chapter 4. So this week, you get six verses. Next week, you get a whole bunch of verses. And that's just how that's going to work. So if you're looking at our pace this morning, you go, okay, I know that we're going to get out of here at 11.55 somewhere in 2024. Well, it's okay. We've figured that in. We get to slow down a little bit this, uh, this week. You know, it's kind of marathon pace. Next week is a little more of a sprint, but we'll survive it together. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are in his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Father, help us this morning to reckon with what you've written here about who Moses is and who Jesus, the Son of God, is, and with our role in holding fast. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Let's make a couple of observations here about the first verse. That's what we're going to do. I'm going to show you the first verse, this introductory part of Hebrews chapter 3. The next few verses compare and contrast Moses. And then in verse 6, there's a little practical section for all of those who are listening to our author. First verse, therefore, holy brothers. I love the way that the author starts here is by addressing his audience. Let's make a couple of notes there. He, he says, brothers, it's a delphoi. It's a very common word in the New Testament for addressing a group of people, generally mixed genders, men and women. Um, we do this still, even in the modern world. Uh, there were a, a whole bunch of kids playing downstairs in my office a couple of weeks ago. I said, hey guys, it's time to get out. Pastor Chris thinks you're cool, but I gotta get some work done. They were not all male, but that's how we use in modern vernacular to refer to a group of people, a male pronoun. It's not entirely different in the first century. Some of you might have a translation that actually says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters. That is not a bent toward liberalism, trying to wedge in stuff that's not there. That's an honest attempt at trying to reckon with the actual meaning of the text. There are bad liberal translations that try to wedge stuff in. That's not an example of one of them. Holy brothers and sisters, you who share in a heavenly calling. Who are you? You are one who has been called by God in heaven to a very specific task. This is, this is actually really clever what's happening here because the author is framing everything that you need to know about Jesus through what you have been called to do. It's not theoretical. It's not up here in the ether just floating around as some intellectual exercise. He grounds it in what you have been called to do. Now, we've talked about what you've been called to do many, many, many times. And we could go to passages like Matthew 28, 16 through 20, the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them all that I have commanded you. That's part of what you have been called to do by heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and you will receive the Holy Spirit, and power will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You might even think of 1 Corinthians 5, how you are called ambassadors of Christ, agents of reconciliation to bring the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ to the entirety of the earth. And so it's very clever what the author has done here. He addresses them in really tender ways, right? Here, my holy brothers and sisters, in this together, having been called by God to a task, right? It's not some vague thing. It's important that we reckon with the argument of Hebrews as something more than just an intellectual exercise. By framing the argument in terms of the audience's heavenly calling is emphasizing what he's talking about and what the church confesses is essential to achieving their mission. If we are to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, proclaiming redemption through Christ alone and worship for Jesus alone and peace by Jesus' blood alone and hope through the death and the resurrection and the second coming of Jesus Christ alone, then you had better well know who this Jesus is. If you want to do the work of Christ, you have to know Christ. And so that's why he follows it up here, right? Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Now, uh, that 
term there doesn't bear an awful lot of weight in English, but it certainly does in first century Greek. Consider isn't just uh, as you kind of ponder things, right? It is a command that is deeply involved. Ponder Jesus, reckon with Jesus, study Jesus, be all about Jesus, have Jesus enveloped in your mind. It's an extremely strong term. As you think about how to apply this passage, this is a great way to start. It's not only important for you to think about what Jesus has done to make you worthy of being called a holy brother or sister, and it's not only important for you to consider what it means for what it means for Jesus to descend in humanity to redeem you. But think about what it means to consider Jesus. I remember Peter called by Christ to walk on water. And what happened when Peter looked away? There was a brief moment there when he failed to consider Jesus. We consider so many things. Every Sunday morning, I get a text message from the late Steve Jobs, who has told me how much time I've spent every day on my iPhone. You're down 11% this week, having only spent one hour and 45 minutes a day on your phone. Shut up, Steve. We're watching our phones. We're considering TV. We're considering college football. We're considering our jobs. We're considering our families. We're considering our streets and our neighborhoods. We're considering the news and our politicians. And it would be a really wonderful thing, beneficial to our lives, to aid us in the mission to which we have been called by heaven if we spent less time considering those things and more time considering Christ. None of those people can provide ultimate hope to a world that's dying. None of those things offer peace to a, a broken, tragically broken city like Rocky Mount. But Jesus can this is a part of your heavenly calling. Consider Jesus. Let your mind be enveloped with Jesus. Be all about Jesus. How do I know that I'm all about Jesus? <laughs> well, here's some very simple and direct ways to know that you are considering Jesus. He has revealed himself in a book. Find some time in that book, and you'll find Jesus on almost every page. Novel. I know. Now, to know this Jesus, Barnabas tells you who Jesus is. Go ahead and take a look at the next phrase there. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. All right, here's an interesting little uh, note for you. It is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus is referred to as an apostle. The only instance anywhere, not only in the book of Hebrews, but anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus is called an apostle. We know there are an awful lot of apostles in the New Testament. Of course, we know many of the disciples. We know Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ and identifies himself as such. We don't want to make too much of what it is that the author is saying here. We need to understand it, I think, in its basis terms. What was an apostle's job? Do you know? Messenger. The apostle is a messenger. He brings a message. 
The prophecy that was made back there in Deuteronomy 18 that one would come bearing the words of God that the author of Hebrews understands is being fulfilled in Jesus Christ in Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, who now reveals God. That's all he's saying about Jesus. Jesus is the one sent by heaven to reveal the words of God. He's a messenger. And in that sense, he's an apostle. But he's more than that. He's also the high priest of our confession. What is our confession? The confession is that you must be perfect to live with a perfect God. He will not allow any unholy person to live in his holy presence. Now, for the saints in the Old Testament, what that meant was we lived under the covenant reckoned to us by Moses. Be perfect. Be holy. We never were. You offer a sacrifice. You go back home again. Your slate now erased a little bit now. But then I sin again and I go back. I offer another sacrifice. I sin. I go back to the priest. I offer another sacrifice. I sin. I go back to the priest. He offers another sacrifice and another and another and another and another and eventually I die. And I've offered countless animals in an attempt to assuage the wrath of God and not a single one of them ever made me holy. And then Christ comes. A high priest sent by heaven. The final high priest offering the final sacrifice his own body once for all time not only to recognize that people are sinful but to actually make them holy that's our confession he is the high priest of that confession the high priest of a new covenant better than the mosaic covenant which never made anybody holy the new covenant writes the laws not on stone tablets but on our hearts jesus has the power by his resurrection to actually change us from the inside up that's our confession. Better than the old covenant given to Moses, an eternal covenant secured by a single sacrifice, Jesus who stands as our high priest and advocate in heaven. Which makes Jesus better than Moses. Which is what Hebrews 3, 1 through 6 is all about. As great as Moses was, nobody compares to Jesus. And so that's what emerges there starting in verse 2. The apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Now, again, verses 2 through 5, the author compares and contrasts Moses against Jesus. Just for a moment, I need you to turn back to Numbers chapter 12, because there's a very specific prophecy given here. Now, this is a pretty deep dive. Uh, my guess is that many of you know parts of the Old Testament. Uh, you know Genesis chapter 1, 2, maybe part of 3, right? And uh, you're familiar with, say, Psalm 23 or maybe even Psalm 1. Uh, there are uh, passages like uh, Isaiah chapter 6, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. This uh, passage that we have here is uh, unique, I think, amongst all of uh, the references made in um, made in uh, the book of Hebrews, it, it, it really is a, a fairly uh, deep dive that we have in um, uh, Numbers chapters uh, 12 and, and 13 here. Now, uh, Numbers chapter 12, um, let's go ahead and take a look. Let's take a look at verse 4. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of meeting. And the three of them came out. 
And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the entrance of the tent and called Aaron and Miriam. And they both came forward and he said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth clearly and not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Two notes there. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in my house. With him I speak mouth to mouth. Moses is the servant of God in his house. Moses speaks the words of God. Now keep those two things in mind here from Numbers chapter 12 and go back to Hebrews chapter 3. Now Moses and Jesus are both recognized for their faithfulness, doing the work given to them by the Father in his heavenly house. Right? Verse 2, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. This is almost definitely a reference back to Numbers chapter 12. And we'll see another one here in just a moment. It is remarkable how well our author knows the Old Testament. If you had to write a letter, if it was your job to write a letter to a church who was struggling with the exact same issues that the Hebrews were here generally in the uh, ancient Near Eastern world, do you have the knowledge of Scripture to write something as well-informed as this author does? Could you make the deep dive? Could you access passages like Numbers chapter 12? Now, I ask a question like that, and I know that we all think, most of us, I think, right? I think that's an unconscionable idea. That is an unreasonable expectation. But here's what I'm telling you. When the author of Hebrews, in the first couple of verses of chapter 3, tells you to consider this Jesus, it means in part that we consider not only the highlight reel summarized for us, in the abridged, authorized, it means going all over this book. And it is not unreasonable for the holy brothers of verse 1, who are told to consider Christ in verses 1 and 2, to be familiar with the references that come in verses 3, 4, and 5. It's really, really not. For Jesus has been counted worthy, he goes on to say, of more glory than Moses. Now, you remember, this is an audience who loves Moses. This is an audience who, if you ask them, who is it that you want to have a meal with? All of history, many of them, I think, would have chosen Moses. Moses had an actual literary and song history in the daily lives of Jewish people there in the first century. Moses is all over their identity. And the author doesn't put Moses down. He knows he knows exactly how wonderful Moses is. It's not the argument, Moses is bad, Jesus is better. It's the argument, Moses is great, Jesus is even greater than that. And we find that kind of argument employed throughout the book of Hebrews. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, and here's how he illustrates that, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For if a house is built by someone but the builder of all things is God, right? This is the argument that's emerging there. Uh, Moses is wonderful, a steward in the house of God, but whose house is it? It's God's house. He's the one who made it. If God made all things, then the things that Moses was a servant over were things made by God. 
a couple of months ago, I was generously allowed a sabbatical, and uh, we went to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. for an overnight trip. It's my mug. I kid around. It has water in it. I've already had my coffee, right? Spent a whole day there, and the next day we had a little bit of time. We went to the Air and Space Museum. We walked out of the Air and Space Museum, and uh, Laura says, you got to go uh, check out the, the back of this building, and I'm like, oh, man, I've been walking an awful lot. It's 120 degrees. Uh, let's call an Uber and find a food truck and right, be out of here. She goes, oh, no, 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 walk out of the back of the building. I promise it's worth it. And so uh, we did, and sure enough, she was right, and I hate admitting that publicly. Uh, but we walked across the National Mall and into the uh, National Art Gallery. And I know very, very little about art. So we recognized a couple of the names. There were statues by Rodin, and that's pretty cool. And we saw some paintings by Van Gogh, and he's got kind of a recognizable style. You can see that. And uh, there's a big crowd, and uh, it's an art gallery big crowd, not a college football big crowd, so we're talking maybe 20 or 30 people. And they're gathered around uh, this painting, and I've never seen this painting before in my life, but it's a painting by Leonardo da Vinci. And uh, they have a lady who is explaining this painting by uh, da Vinci, and she's going over all the details, and it, it's really something, I mean, to hear her describe, it's m more art than I've ever learned in any particular instance in my life. And everyone is enraptured, and I'm kind of the, you know, uh, chucklehead in the back, just like, take a picture, zoom in, there we go, da Vinci moving on, right? <laughs> Maybe we can catch another rocket in a space museum. Who deserves more glory? The painting, this arrangement of paints on this piece of wood, or da Vinci, the genius who orchestrates this incredible piece of art? The analogy used here in Hebrews chapter 3 is that it's da Vinci who we celebrate. We're not celebrating the thing that he made. He is greater than the thing that he has made. Now, to extend this analogy, and they all eventually break down, but imagine that the lady who was sitting there in the gallery, who was employed by the gallery to explain to all the people the genius of this painting, took credit herself for this incredible work. Here you are in this building. You've seen this painting. I'm explaining it all to you. Let there be glory to me, the guide here in the National Gallery of Art, right? And, and she, she had a little bit of that about her. I'm, I'm going to tell you, she, she was a little, uh, she was robust in confidence. <laughs> now that's Moses. Moses is very, very good at what he does. But Moses is a docent in the house of God. He did not build the house. He did not fill the house. He does not have the power to let some in and kick others out of the house of God. He's there as a steward to explain to people what God himself has built. That's his role. And he is very, very good at it. But who deserves more glory? The puckered up lady teaching us about da Vinci's painting or da Vinci himself. That's the point that the author is making here in Hebrews chapter 3. Moses is wonderful. But he's not the creator. It's only the creator who deserves the glory, even above and beyond its incredible creation. As a corollary here, and this is a free moment, I'll give this one to you, you know, just as an aside here. If you remove the idea of God as creator from the way that we instruct our children in Sunday school, the way that we talk about God here in corporate worship on Sunday mornings, everything else falls apart. You cannot construct a healthy model of worship 
unless God is recognized as the maker of all things. Because without God as creator, you don't get God with authority, and a God with no authority can neither judge nor save the world. That was free. That's a marginal note. Back to the text. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, has much more glory than the builder of a house, has more honor than the house itself. Verse 5, now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant. Same kind of language we saw back there in Numbers chapter 12. To, te <coughs> excuse me, to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Again, a reference back there to Numbers chapter 12. What happened? What happened with Moses? He stood mouth to mouth with God. God put his words into Moses' mouth. That's what he did. He spoke of a message that would come later. That's what his role was. Verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Moses is in God's house, but it's Christ's house. Moses prophesies about a message that will come later. Christ is the message. Moses mediates a covenant that points toward the holiness of God. Christ is the holiness of God. Moses explains how sacrifices are intended for us to recognize that he is holy and we are not. That there is a barrier between us and God. Christ reckons with the barrier ripping it into coming down from heaven and drawing us up to God, making us holy and worthy of being in his presence. Christ is greater than Moses, even as incredible as Moses is. That's the point that the author's making here. Whereas Moses worked faithfully as a servant in the house of God, Jesus owns the house. He's the son. And the son ranks higher than the servant. That's the argument that's made throughout the book of Deut or excuse me, Hebrews. Now, this is what it says, verse 6. And this is where we get some practical admonition here. And you're going to see, here's the lead into that big warning passage. There are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Last week we saw the first one. Next week we'll see the second one. Here's the lead in, verse 6. But as Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. There we go. And we, that's us, are in his house when? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now, that's sort of a dangerous thing we just read there. Did you notice that word, if? If could be read in a totally disheartening way. But we know we are in God's house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now here's what that doesn't mean. Pay close attention. This is not a cause to effect statement. If only you will hold on. If only you will prove yourselves worthy. If only you will magnify your own faithfulness so that God can recognize it from his holy house in heaven, then you will be welcomed in. That's cause to effect. Your faith is the cause. The effect is he'll let you in. That's not what's being said here in Hebrews chapter 3. It's not a cause to effect statement. It's an evidence to inference statement. An evidence to to inference statement. If you do all of these things, if you remain faithful, if you align yourselves with Jesus Christ, 
and refuse to go back to what you had before, if you remain steady, if you persevere as a holy one, a saint of God, then I'm only left with the ability to infer that you are, in fact, a chosen one of God. If you do those things, then we can infer that you are, in fact, who you claim to be. Now, this exact same phraseology is used in verse 14. We'll see it next week. The conditional statements in verse 6 and verse 14 do not cite what will be true if they hold on, but what is already true of them if, in fact, they endure. The author's argument here is really simple. Do you see? Christians prove their faith is real, one, by remaining confident in the person and cross of Jesus Christ, right? If we hold fast our confidence, confidence in what? That he is who he says he is, has done what he has said he has done, and will come again for those who follow him, right? We must be confident. Secondly, we must be hopeful. We are people who boast in hope. Uh, yesterday, both of our kids had soccer games, and uh, that second game, my goodness, we just won by a country mile. It was a blowout. And it, we're trying to encourage the kids, hey, if you uh, are on the better end of a blowout, you know, smile and shake hands and get in the car and you can celebrate there, but don't be obnoxious in front of all of the other kids. Yeah, we won, right? But here's something you can boast about. Here's something you should boast about. You should boast about the hope that we have in him. It's confidence. Here's what Jesus has already done. And hope, here's what he will do when he comes again. It's bookends of faith in the work and person of Jesus before me and after me and what he's doing now as my high priest over this confession. Those who walk away from the faith renouncing Jesus, denying his work at Calvary, hopeless. And this is my best understanding of this text. I could be wrong. I don't believe that I am. They proved that they were never true believers. And that puts us in, in an incredibly awkward situation because some of you are old enough to have adult children who at seven years old in sincerity and in genuineness walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer and, and seemed to progress for years in what it meant to follow Jesus Christ and then at some point decided to walk away to walk away from the faith and, and I've heard parents in their 50s and 60s and 70s well I, I just don't know I don't know but I remember they prayed that prayer I don't know where the eternal destiny of those children lie but we know that the prescription is the same just keep telling them about Jesus just keep sharing the good news if your children seem holier and more faithful than you and read their Bibles more and pray more than you do and give evidence of more Christ-likeness, you just keep telling them about Jesus. If they have walked away for decades and have not made any indication, you just keep telling them about Jesus. 
one way or the other, continue to confess Christ. And we'll continue to wrestle with these passages here in the Old Testament. Now brought to reality by the author of Hebrews. Now, we're really close to saying something dangerous about God. We're really close to saying this, and here's what we don't want to say. We're really close to saying this life is extraordinarily hard, but God has given us a good foundation, and he's pushed us out the door, and now it's our work, right? He's given us a a foot up. He's put a a little loan in our pockets, and he's set us out into the world, and now we get the opportunity to prove whether or not we can actually be faithful, that he has inaugurated our faith, that he has created it, but now he has made us master over our own faith. And we can only get into his heavenly house if we prove ourselves good stewards of the faith that he's given us. It would be really easy to misconstrue this passage to say that our faith is entirely our work. That's not the testimony of the New Testament. If we learn anything about God, In passages like this one and others, it's this. The Lord requires faith from his people. Radical, unwavering faith. He calls us to dramatic faith, to be flooded in faith, right? Overwhelmed, inundated faith. But faith is God's work. At the same time as we have been called to faith, we know that our faith is a gift from God, authored by God, secured by God, and will be completed by God. Uh, David Mathis, who's an incredible author, asked the question, have you ever feared that your faith might fail? And my guess is that for any of you who in authenticity have stepped back and asked the great questions of the universe, why am I here? Who is God? Did he make me? What am I supposed to do? Have at some point wondered Will my faith make it through? Will I indeed persevere? You should probably occasionally, if you're being intellectually and spiritually honest with yourself, ask that question. Because life is hard. When life is really, really good, faith seems like an easy thing. But when life takes a tragic turn, and you lose your job, and you can't find another one, or someone you love gets really, really sick, and you don't know if they're going to live, or if someone you love with all your heart does not love you back in healthy ways, you might ask yourself the question, will I hold fast? It's the same question that Jason posed this morning in introducing that song that we've been singing all month. Here's what we do know. He will hold us fast. Have you ever feared that your faith might fail? Have you ever worried that you might not be able to hold out or hold on in the long, arduous journey of the Christian life? Jude celebrates God's keeping power in his beloved doxology. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. It's a truth the Apostle Paul often rehearsed as he did in Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And when he told the Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful, he will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And when Paul testified of his own endurance in Philippians chapter 3, that the, 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 the decisive cause of his pressing on was not his own reaching and pushing, but, quote, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. You can persevere because Christ is persevering in the work of your faith. He is its author and its finisher. Faith is a God work. So, and we are in his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope, can we alone hold fast? Never. Can we, by the power of Christ, hold fast? Always. He will hold me fast. It's a radical thing that the author has said here in Hebrews 3. When we think about what it means to be American, we define it generally in terms of ideas, right? We're a people of freedom. We're a people of liberty. We're a people of independence and self-reliance. That's not the way that the Jewish people in the first century identified themselves. They weren't defined by ideals. They were defined by their ancestors. If you asked someone in the first century, what did it mean to be Jewish? They would tell you, I am a son of Abraham and a student of Moses. And what the author of Hebrews has told us is, it's good to be a son of Abraham and it's good to be a student of Moses, but your identity now as, as a brother or sister of Christ. And he'll hold you fast. You'll persevere because Christ is better than Moses. Father, I pray that you would help us to heed the warnings given to us here in this chapter. Let our faith be strong. Help us not to waver. Help us to persevere to the end. And help us to live with the kind of confidence that is available to believers, knowing that he who began a good work in us will bring us to the very, very end. In Jesus' name, amen.